You are listening to the Mens Rea podcast, and this is the story of the McCann family murders. Esther O'Brien was from Tremor, County Waterford. She was the youngest child in her family, and Esther was described by them as a cheerful, lively, and friendly person, and her family said that she had a love of children. In 1973, Esther had set off on her own and moved over two hours away from her home to Dublin. There, Esther took up a place at University College Dublin UCD, in their undergraduate psychology program. But she left the course before she graduated and focused instead on word processing and computers. After that, Esther had a number of administrative and secretarial jobs. Even in her early adult life, Esther had known tragedy. In her 20s, she had lost the love of her life in a motorbike accident, and just shortly after his death, Esther discovered she was carrying his baby. Her family was very supportive of her during this awful time, and they helped to get her settled in a home and to start life with the child. But devastatingly, that wasn't the end to the horrible misfortune that Esther faced. Just a few months after giving birth, her baby passed away from cot death. One of the positions that Esther worked in was in the upmarket hotel on Dublin's Georgian Stevens Green, the Shelburne. While working there in 1986, she met Frank McCann through mutual friends. At the time that the two met, Esther was going out with someone else. That relationship ended a number of months later when Esther decided to stay in Ireland rather than move to Australia with that man. When Frank heard that Esther was single, he asked their mutual friends to set them up. The two started dating, and after an intense whirlwind romance, Frank McCann and Esther O'Brien were married on the 22nd of May, 1987, barely a year after they first started going out. Frank McCann was born in 1960. He was one of five kids in the family, four boys and a girl and they all grew up in the peaceful South Dublin suburb of Terenure. McCann attended Temple Oak College and was heavily involved in swimming. He trained and took part in competitions and would go on to be a noted international swimmer for Ireland. Later in life, he continued to take part in the sport, but as a coach and as president of the Leinster branch of the Irish Amateur Swimming Association. After completing his final leaving certificate exams, Frank began working with his father as a cooper for Irish distillers. Not long after taking up the position, though, in 1982, Frank was made redundant with many of his colleagues. It was at that point that Frank decided to set up his own business. He founded Irish Craft Coopers along with an older former colleague. 
Eventually, he bought out that partner to become the sole owner. Frank and Esther were opposites. Frank's friends said that he cultivated a sort of conservative image. He was athletic and clean living and didn't touch alcohol. He was also ardently anti-smoking to the extent that there was absolutely no smoking allowed in his house. And that was something that was pretty unusual in the early 90s in Ireland. And if Esther and her friends wanted a cigarette, they'd have to go out in the garden. Frank's only vice, as far as anyone knew at that point, was his propensity to use foul language. Professionally, Frank was known as being tough-minded when it came to business. He was gruff, forceful, and always tried to get his way. He also had no problem pursuing legal action if he thought it might get his invoices paid on time, though it was noted he was often slow to pay his own bills when he went around demanding payment of debts to him. In the McCann's marriage, the romance dissipated quickly, with Frank soon taking an approach much more similar to his professional persona than the devoted husband. After only a year of being married, Frank became noticeably cold towards his wife, with friends noting that Esther always made sure that things were just so for her husband, and that she would always defer to him. He was well and truly the boss. Esther had tried to get Frank to go to marriage counselling with her, but she'd later told her sister Marion that Frank thought the source of the problem in their relationship was her. In 1989, Esther quit work to sort out a health problem she had with her thyroid. From that point on, she would stay at home in the McCann's house in Butterfield Avenue, Rathfarnham. McCann had said his wife was infertile, patently not the case given her previous pregnancy. The issue she had was in fact this thyroid problem, and so she underwent treatment for 12 months, and eventually her thyroid levels became acceptable. She started running computer lessons for individuals from her home. Esther's students were generally young women looking to improve their prospects or get back into work after having children. Her work was more about helping others than making a paycheck for herself. That was just how she was. In November of 1989, there was an arson fire at Frank's Cooperage factory in Grace Hills Industrial Estate. The fire was determined a case of arson because there were two sources of the fire found on the premises where Gardy believed an accelerant had been used. However, the investigation turned up no leads as to who had set the fire, and no one was ever charged with the incident. Shortly after, Frank sold the company. After that, in 1991, Frank and one of his brothers bought a pub in Blessington, County Wicklow. It was about a 30-minute drive from his home in the foothills of the Dublin Mountains, and the brothers renamed the pub The Cooperage. Around the same time, Frank's sister Jeanette moved in with the couple. She was 17 and had discovered that she was pregnant. Frank and Esther had taken her in to look after her and help her through the process of giving her child up for adoption. Esther went to Jeanette's appointments with her and was even at the hospital when the baby, a little girl, was born. A few days after the birth of her daughter, Jeanette decided that she wanted Esther and her brother to take baby Jessica. She could think of no better home for the baby than with them, 
and so Jessica went home with Esther and Frank to Rat Farnham, and the McCanns began the process of adopting their little baby niece. Esther was totally smitten with the baby from the moment she saw her, and documented all of Jessica's milestones in a diary she wrote on her computer. The floppy disk recorded everything from shopping for baby items to when Jessica got chickenpox. By the summer of 1992, the adoption application process was drawing to a close, and Esther was expecting the decision of the adoption board about Jessica imminently. There was a lot going on at the house at the time. Her sister Marion, whom she was close with, had discovered that her son, James, had a reoccurrence of cancer, and Esther was devastated by the news. The adoption board seemed to be dragging their heels over making a decision about Jessica's future, and both she and Jeanette had been writing them letters to try and figure out what was going on. On top of all that, there were issues with the McCann's home in Butterfield Avenue. The heating system seemed to have gone haywire. The McCanns reported a gas leak on the 3rd of July 1992, which was examined by Board Gosh, the natural gas company here in Ireland. No leak was located at that time, though. But on the 16th of July, less than two weeks later, the McCanns called in another leak. When the gas technician called out to the house to investigate, the incident was classified as a Class A leak requiring urgent attention. And again on the 26th, Ten days after that, another gas leak was reported at the McCann's. This time, when a Borgash employee went out to inspect the house once more, nothing was found. Two days later, in the early hours of the 28th of July, yet another leak was reported to Borgash by Frank McCann. The call to them was placed at five minutes to eight in the morning, after Esther had smelled gas in the house and called her husband, who was at their pub in Blessington. She'd woken up to the smell and with an awful headache, so she'd grabbed Jessica, who was 18 months at the time, and left the house. Esther put the baby in the family car and pushed the car down the drive, away from danger. Then she'd used her mobile phone to call Frank. When help arrived, the emergency gas worker said that he'd found a quote-unquote colossal amount of gas in the hallway and that as little as flicking a light switch would have ignited it. Esther's quick thinking had saved herself and her child from being caught up in a gas explosion. The McCann home was once again inspected, and it was discovered that the gas leak on the 28th of July had resulted when two pipes, which had been joined, were entirely pulled apart. The pipes were located under the floorboards, and the damage done to them could only have been completed with heat applied to the joints. The piping itself had only been installed a week before the leak as part of a gas meter upgrade in an attempt to resolve the issues they were having at the house. But at least the source of the leak had been found. And just when it seemed as if the issues with the gas supply was sorted out, it appeared that there may have been an electrical issue with the house. Early on the 14th of August, Esther woke up to the sound of the telephone ringing. She was shocked to discover that her electric blanket was also on fire. It was folded up in four and left on the end of the bed, but Esther knew she hadn't put it there. Last she'd seen it, the blanket had been in an entirely different room. 
Frank wasn't in the room when Esther woke up, but came in as she was trying to get the fire out. He yanked the plug of the blanket out of the wall and helped his wife. Once the fire was out, Frank left the house to go to Blessington in response to the call that had come through. It was from the guardie to say that the alarm was going off in the pub. Esther had told her family she had no idea how the whole thing had happened. Thankfully, all went quiet in the McCann home after that. Esther turned her attention to sorting out the adoption application and finding out what the delay was and taking care of her sister and nephew. Esther had had enough of waiting for the adoption board to get back to her and their unsatisfactory response to her letters, and so she set up a meeting at the Coombe Maternity Hospital to go over paperwork on the 4th of September. She hoped to get all the documents again and try to ensure that she had sent everything in to the adoption board that was needed to process the adoption of Jessica. But early on the morning of the 4th of September, Emergency services were called to the McCann's house in Butterfield Avenue. The house was on fire. Neighbours surrounded the home, which had a blazing fire coming from the open front door, and the house was filling with smoke. Some of the men found a ladder and raised it to the bedroom window in the upstairs of the house. Frank McCann had not been in the house when the fire started. He was locking up the pub 30 minutes away but he arrived before the fire brigade did and stood in the front garden pleading for someone to help his wife and child while neighbours held him back from entering the house. He collapsed into a faint in the front garden and had to be taken from the scene by ambulance for treatment. Shortly after the fire brigade arrived, what had less than an hour before appeared to be a burning inferno was extinguished. The seat of the fire in the hallway had burned hot and quick and filled the house with smoke. Unfortunately, both Esther and baby Jessica were found dead in the upstairs of the house, both of them having been overcome by the noxious fumes produced in the fire. The investigation into the fire began quickly. Senior fire officers arrived on scene, as well as members of the Gardee, and arson was suspected almost immediately. Inside the hallway was a burnt table, and on that table was a gas cylinder. A blowtorch was also found in the house. Though there was no smell of petrol or other accelerant, it seemed clear that something combustible had been set alight in the hall with the front door left open. Once Frank was recovered, Gardie spoke to him about his movements the night of the fire to find out how it was that he hadn't been in the house. Frank McCann made his first statement on the 5th of September 1992 at Rathfarnham Garda Station voluntarily. The investigation was led by Superintendent Pat King and Detective Inspector Anthony Sork, and the interview lasted five hours. Frank told police that he had been in the house that evening, but needed to return to work. He said that he'd arrived home on the evening of September the 3rd at around 10pm. He noticed at that point a mark on the dining room door and rang Gardie, 
He then had a cup of tea and headed back to the pub to close up. He left home at around 11 and locked up the pub at half one. After that, he went home again, and when he pulled into the street close to 2am, he saw people standing around outside. He thought there was a party until he realised there was a fire, and it was in his house. McCann went on to tell Gardy that, in addition to the trouble they'd had in the house, he'd gotten a number of threatening letters and phone calls. Frank had no idea who they were from, he had no contact with so-called subversives, and didn't think that it could be an ex-employee or someone with a grudge. Gardy in Rathfarnham had records of McCann's contact with them and the Blessington station from the last few months. On the 13th of August, they'd gotten a call from McCann reporting threats via the phone both at home and at the pub. Frank also disclosed that he'd found graffiti on the back wall of the pub. The words, burn you bastard, had been painted there. McCann went on to say during his interview that a few days before the fire, on the 2nd of September, a man had been in the pub and asked to use the telephone book. Frank had noticed afterwards that someone had scrawled the words burn and bastard in its pages. In the wake of the fire, Gardy conducted house-to-house inquiries, handed out questionnaires, and set up roadside checkpoints to identify possible witnesses. Frank McCann went on a trip to America. Bordgosh sent out more technicians to Butterfield Avenue to see if, given that they'd had trouble with the gas over the summer, they might have some explanation for the fire. But their examination found no leaks, nor were there any issues with the electrical wiring in the house. Given the Gardies' initial inquiries, their focus had turned to Frank McCann. The fire appeared to be arson, and McCann's behaviour seemed off, too. He'd tried to throw suspicion on his mysterious threatening caller, but this didn't pan out. And then, on the day of Esther and Jessica's funerals, McCann's strange behaviour continued. By unfortunate coincidence, the funerals fell on the day of McCann's mother's birthday. In response, Frank McCann decided to open the pub, and he threw his mother a surprise birthday party that night in Dublin. Gardy were told that on his drive back up from the burial, McCann opened his car window and shouted lewd remarks at young girls. They were also told that McCann had been engaging in a sexual relationship with a 16-year-old who worked at the pub. It was rumoured they'd even spent the night together there. Further, in a skip near to the Cooperage Bar in Blessington, carpet matching the one that was laid throughout the McCann's home was found. It was confirmed to be a remnant from the house. There were scorch marks on it. Someone had tried to burn it. And there was one more thing that had guided the Gardie towards McCann himself in their investigation. Days after the fire occurred, the adoption board called the Gardie. They had information that they thought might be relevant to the ongoing investigation into the fire at the McCanns. The adoption board had made the decision to refuse the McCanns' application for the adoption of Jessica. This refusal was on the basis of allegations that Frank had had a sexual relationship 
with a 17-year-old girl with special needs while he was her swim coach, and that this 17-year-old girl had had his child. A complaint about the abuse had been made by the girl's mother directly to the adoption board in April of 1991, when the unnamed girl's family found out that Frank McCann was fostering a young girl. The McCanns had put in their application only a month later. The 17-year-old gave birth to her child in 1987, around the time that Frank McCann had married Esther, and then she put the child up for adoption. The family had informed McCann of the situation, and a family friend, Father Michael Cleary, approached McCann to discuss the matter. Frank had not been receptive to this approach. After this, an apparently anonymous donation was made to the girl's father, somewhere in the region of five or six hundred pounds. When approached by the adoption board, McCann had denied the allegations. In fact, he, his wife and sister were often onto the board through phone calls and letters to ask what the delay was in their application. But only Frank had known about the allegations when they were made. According to an article in the Irish Times by Frank McNeil and Paul O'Malley, the adoption board were surprised with the quote-unquote strident approach that Frank McCann had taken in relation to his dealings with the adoption board, given the situation. The adoption board informed the McCann solicitor of their final decision on the 28th of July, 1992. They were going to reject the application for the adoption of baby Jessica and it was their policy to inform parties directly involved with an application the reason behind their decision. McCann and the lawyer kept that information from Esther. He didn't want words to get out about the girl's allegations and therefore the reasons why he would not be deemed suitable as an adoptive parent, and he wanted to try and prevent that information reaching his wife and sister in particular. Throughout September and October of 1992, Frank stayed with various friends and family and often spoke to the guardie. He explained to them that he and his solicitor were waiting to tell Esther about the adoption board's decision together and that they intended on appealing the decision because Frank denied the allegations of so-called impropriety and had not been able to answer what he called the false allegations against him. But despite these excuses, Frank McCann was arrested at lunchtime on the 4th of November 1992 under Section 30 of the Offences Against the State Act. This is the piece of legislation that deals with treason, sedition, membership of unlawful organisations like paramilitaries, and gives provision for the establishment of the Special Criminal Court. Frank McCann was arrested for having caused an explosion. It was a strange choice but it allowed Gardie to hold McCann for a period of 48 hours for the purposes of questioning. After two days of interrogation, McCann made a statement to the Gardie, admitting that he had set the fire in his home. He was released after the 48 hours elapsed, while Gardie went about preparing their file to send to the Director of Public Prosecutions for charges of murder to be laid. In the meantime, Frank was admitted to St. John of God's mental health facility with an apparent nervous breakdown. While there, he struck up a relationship with a female patient and when he left that facility, he moved in with her in Tremor, County Waterford, 
It was there that Detective Inspector Anthony Sork arrested Frank McCann once more on the 22nd of April 1993. He was brought to appear in the district court in Rathfarnham, where he was charged with two counts of murder and remanded in custody. Nine months later, McCann, then 38, appeared at the Central Criminal Court to face trial. It began in January 1994 before Mr Justice Rory O'Hanlon. McCann's solicitor had engaged the eminent Mr Barry White, senior counsel, to appear in his defence. Counsel for the state set out their case in opening arguments, that McCann had intentionally set the fire in order to kill his wife and the infant child they had hoped to adopt. He'd done this, they argued, to prevent anyone from finding out about the accusation made against him by his former swimming pupil. Proceedings began with three weeks of legal argument without the jury present. The wrangling was solely concerned with the admissibility of interviews with and statements by McCann while he was detained under Section 30 of the Offences Against the State Act in November of 1992. McCann's defence argued that he was improperly held under this act, which allowed a longer detention time than the more standard Criminal Justice Act. But after all the arguments, Mr Justice O'Hanlon decided to allow the evidence in. The jury of ten men and two women were sworn in and the prosecution began calling witnesses, one of which was Detective Garda Seamus Quinn. Garda Quinn had been one of the officers who had initially responded to the scene of the fire. He told the court that he found a small table that had been moved from the hall into the front garden. Quinn described how the hall table was badly charred and sitting on top of it was the gas cylinder. The detective sergeant also described having found a blowtorch outside the McCann's house, which was switched to the on position. Garda Quinn had carried out experiments with the blowtorch and the trial was halted in light of legal objection to the testimony. Quinn had taken a hacksaw to the blowtorch and discovered it was turned about a quarter of the way on and did tests using a similar torch and cylinder found in the house. The McCann's house had in fact been replicated for the purposes of attempting to find out exactly how the fire had started. Also found in the house after the fire had been extinguished were two smoke detectors. They'd been left in their wrapping in the attic. Downstairs, near to floorboards that had been lifted over some heating pipes, were paint cans and a two-inch paintbrush. Experts from the fire brigade concluded that the heat and burning patterns indicated that the fire had begun in the hall area. No electrical faults were found in the fire's aftermath either. Martin McDermott, a fire officer from Tara Street, took the stand and told the court that when he got to the house, there was a lack of heat which was unusual. McDermott explained that this indicated there had been a, quote, fast and furious fire in a very short space of time, end quote. Further, due to the burning present on the front door, he concluded that it had been open while the fire burned. A member of the Garda Technical Bureau who specialised in handwriting analysis, Detective Lynch, gave evidence that he had examined the writing on two of the envelopes, which had had threatening letters in them. 
he concluded that there were a number of common features with the handwriting of Mr. McCann. Lynch told the court that it was possible that McCann could have written the notes and the envelopes, though he would not go as far as to confirm that the writing was definitely McCann's. Lynch went on to say that he'd also looked at the handwriting that had been found in the phone book from the McCann's pub, but he'd found absolutely no connection to the writing of Mr. McCann or indeed the other samples the Technical Bureau had access to. Another Garda gave evidence of a conversation that he'd had with Frank McCann in the aftermath of the fire. Garda James Murphy was on duty at Butterfield Avenue to secure the scene of the fire on the 10th of September. A man approached him and the two spoke, and Murphy had recorded that conversation in his notes for the day. Murphy said that at first he hadn't realised it was McCann that he was speaking to. The man who'd approached him seemed jovial and was making jokes, including one about barbecues. The Garda also recorded that McCann had brought up and made reference to the idea of life insurance. McCann said his life was insured and that he'd tried to take out a policy on his wife two weeks before the fire but couldn't. McCann laughed, saying that if it had been him who had died, Esther would have been a wealthy woman, but went on to say that money wouldn't be much use to her now. On cross-examination by Mr. White, much was made of the fact that the initial date Garda Murphy had noted in his memo book had been the 18th of September, and this date had been amended, but the Garda insisted that he was sure the date of the conversation was the 10th. He'd made an error and corrected it. But the defence team were not satisfied with that answer, asking if it was not in fact the case that Garda Murphy had made the note of a made-up conversation on the 18th and then changed the date after the fact to better fit the state's timeline of their narrative of the crime. Murphy vehemently denied this. It was a simple writing error, nothing more, he said. In just a few days, the court had heard a lot of technical evidence from Gardee, the fire services and various witnesses on the scene. Court broke for the weekend on the 28th of January, expecting the state to resume its case on the following Monday. But late Friday evening, news got out that Frank McCann had been rushed from prison to a nearby hospital. Frank McCann had attempted to set himself alight in Arbor Hill Prison with an aerosol deodorant can while in the bathroom. The prison staff reacted almost immediately and extinguished the fire, and McCann was taken directly to St. James's Hospital. He was treated there for burns to his face and body. He was described as being comfortable by a spokesperson for the hospital over that weekend, though his injuries were fairly serious. Mr. Justice Rory O'Hanlon had to decide what to do about the case. He ordered that the doctors caring for McCann in St. James's provide him with a report about McCann's health and his ability to continue the trial. On the basis of the medical report he received, Justice O'Hanlon decided that McCann was no longer medically fit to stand trial. The jury were discharged and the state would have to wait until McCann had recovered to continue the prosecution against him for the murder of his wife and daughter. That chance would not come again until June 10, 1996, 
two and a half years after McCann's first trial had collapsed and a full four years after the fire that had killed Esther and Jessica McCann. This time, McCann appeared before Mr Justice Carney. Again, Mr Barry White was acting as senior counsel for the defence. The jury comprised of six men and six women. Again, before the trial proper began, there was an application by the defence to rule inadmissible the contents of McCann's November the 6th statement to the Gardaí on the basis that he had been improperly held under Section 30 of the Offences Against the State Act. Once again, this application was rejected by the trial judge. Through the opening statements, it was made clear that both the prosecution and defence agreed that the fire in the McCann's house had been deliberately set, but Barry White and his team made the argument that what had actually happened was that Esther and Jessica had died in what amounted to a tragic accident. The state still maintained that Frank had set the fire with the intention that it would kill both Esther and Jessica, and that he had done this in order to avoid scandal being associated with his name. The court heard again the evidence that had been presented in the 1994 trial, and that there was a possibility that McCann had written some of the threats he complained about around the time of the fire. The issues with the gas heating in the McCann house over the summer were described. Technicians from Board Gosh described their examinations of the gas boiler and pipes in the house. In particular, the gas fitter who had examined the pipes on the 28th of July and discovered that they appeared to be prized apart testified that, given the damage, it looked as if the heating system had been intentionally tampered with. Professor John Harbison gave evidence of the cause of death to the trial on the 19th of June, outlining how the fire victims would have first passed into unconsciousness before their deaths. Esther had died of carbon monoxide poisoning and had suffered some burning to her body. Jessica had passed away from smoke inhalation and had not been exposed to the flames at all. She was found in her crib with her soother still in her mouth. Like other Garda witnesses, Detective Garda Brendan Gallagher was called to the stand to describe to the jury his interactions with Frank McCann after the fire. On September 18, 1992, he told the jury that he went to see McCann after the fire while he was staying with a friend. When Detective Gallagher arrived at the house, he was shown a mass card by the family friend which was addressed to McCann and signed from the Reverend Byrne. Then the Garda was brought through to the kitchen. Gallagher said that there he saw McCann lying on the floor, apparently collapsed. The officer called for a doctor who arrived and attempted to administer medicine in the form of an injection to the semi-conscious man, but suddenly McCann seemed to have roused. Detective Garda Gallagher recalled that after that, McCann had fought the doctor off quite violently. The events of the day of the fire and McCann's movements were described by a number of witnesses for the benefit of the jury. Alex McDonnell, the barman at the McCann's pub, told the jury that he had seen the threatening graffiti sprayed on the back wall of the pub and said McCann had told him about receiving threatening calls while at the premises. Mr McDonnell told the court that there was in fact a call the day after the fire too, to the bar, which he himself had answered. 
The caller had asked for McCann, who obviously wasn't there, and then jokingly asked if McCann had gotten the bad news before hanging up. McDonnell said that the voice might have had a northern twang, and that whoever had called seemed to be trying to disguise his voice. McDonnell also described for the jury his interactions with Frank McCann the day of the fire and when McCann had arrived and left the pub that night. Next door to the Cooperage pub was a chipper, a chip shop. Frank had called in there at half twelve for something to eat, and then the owner, Peg Gethings, had heard the gate between the two buildings again at around 1am. She told the court that at the time she assumed it was Frank leaving and heading home. Tim Grace, owner of the West Wicklow House, another pub in Blessington, told the court how he'd gotten threatening phone calls too. Mr. Grace said the caller had told him to quote, pay up or be burned out. He reported the calls to the guardee but hadn't taken them terribly seriously, given he didn't owe anyone money. On the stand, Mr. Grace said the voice he heard on the line was well-spoken and clear. He'd also received a threatening letter made up of newspaper clippings, which read, quote, Bloody warning, West on way out with a bang, loser, end quote. It was the prosecution's assertion that these calls and letters had been orchestrated by Frank McCann to support his story that there were threats made against him and that this was all part of a plan to try and mislead police to place the blame for the killing of his wife and child elsewhere. Neighbours on Butterfield Avenue recalled during the trial what went on on the street that night. Marie Daly lived directly across the road from number 39 and had gone out early on the 4th after being told that there was a fire. She saw Frank standing in the front garden. He was upset and shouting. Ms. Daly told the court she'd seen flames coming out of the front door of the McCann's house, which was ajar, and a strong glow coming from the rooms upstairs. The windows in the front of the house were blown out due to the heat, and she recalled that the flames could be seen licking up the walls at the front of the house. Ms. Daly had been one of the neighbours who had helped to hold McCann back when he attempted to go up the ladder to rescue Esther and Jessica. Another neighbour, John Brett, described how he had climbed the ladder and smashed the window to the upstairs bedroom. The effort had taken him two tries. Richard Duggan, who also lived on the street, told the court that before the fire, early on the morning of the 4th, he had heard a car revving loudly on the street near to the McCann's house. Mr Duggan had looked out onto the road and said that the car left quickly, but he didn't see the direction it went in. At the time, he thought that maybe it was people out up to no good looking to steal cars. A short time later, he'd heard an explosion and a loud bang, along with the sound of breaking glass, and had seen a ball of flame shoot out from McCann's front door. He also recalled the arrival of a white car which he thought was McCann's at the house before the fire brigade arrived. Joseph Daly described how he too had heard the explosion from number 39 that night. He jumped out of bed and quickly dressed before running across the road. Mr Daly had seen Frank struggling to try and help his wife. Frank McCann appeared distressed to him and Daly saw him apparently collapse in the garden. He also saw that after an ambulance arrived, 
and a paramedic began to approach McCann to assist him, he saw Frank jump up, apparently recovered. William Raymond, the station officer at the nearby Nutgrove Firehouse, gave evidence regarding what he found at the McCann's house when he examined the scene after the fire had been extinguished. He told the court that it was strange to him that the fire had died down so quickly when it had obviously burnt so hot. He described how, during his examination, he had removed a table from the hall. It was badly burnt and had a small gas cylinder sitting on top of it. McCann's defence focused first on the disputed statement given by him to Gardee. His legal team pointed out that McCann had been arrested under Section 30 of the Offences Against the State Act, instead of Section 4 of the Criminal Justice Act, so his detention period was four times as long as it would have otherwise been. The defence alleged that that gave Gardee plenty of time to lean on McCann while he was in custody and get the information that they wanted from him. There was in fact a Garda conspiracy against their client. Further evidence was also heard from a fire expert from the UK. Dr John Lloyd told the court that the fire was indeed deliberate, and that if McCann had set the fire in the way he described to the Gardaí in his statement, McCann would have been burned or injured in the fire too. Dr. Lloyd concluded that an accelerant had probably been used, though there was no direct evidence for that. He was also critical of the tests that had been conducted by Gardee to try and reconstruct how the fire had started, as they weren't scientific. There had been a haphazard test of a blowtorch and a gas cylinder, as two similar items were found on the scene but Gardee weren't able to reproduce the sort of fire that had consumed the McCann's home. During questioning from the defence, Dr Lloyd agreed that the tests had been devised in order to try and prove a Garda theory, but hadn't succeeded in replicating the fire in any way. When he was cross-examined by the prosecution, Dr Lloyd agreed that he had not been present for the tests carried out by the Gardee that he had not visited the scene and had not carried out his own experiments. Lloyd also accepted that fire damage on the front door was consistent with it having been open for a period of time while the fire was burning, indicating that it had been the route whoever had set the fire had taken to leave the house. Michael McCann and Bernard McCann, Frank's brothers, were also called to give evidence. They told the court about their involvement in the events around the 6th of November, when McCann made a statement to the Gardee confessing to setting the fire in his home. The brothers had been told by the Gardee that Frank had, according to the Irish Times, quote, more or less admitted everything except setting the fire, end quote, and that it would be in everyone's best interests if Frank were to just admit what had happened. The family at that point, the brothers said, were more or less convinced that Frank had set the fire and they had a family meeting to try and get him to confess. When they approached Frank to try and get the truth from him, Frank had told his brothers that there had been a suicide pact between him and his wife, that that was how they had decided to clear up the so-called mess created by the issues with the adoption board. Frank had intended to die with Esther and Jessica. 
Instead, he had described to his family how he'd put petrol in the hall and lit a match, but burned his fingers. The match had dropped and set the petrol alight, and the flames had taken hold immediately. This was the story that he'd told Gardy. In the contested statement made by Frank on the 6th of November, he'd said, quote, I was going to finish it all. I was going to clean up the whole mess. Me, Esther, and Jessica, end quote. And, quote, I need to get away, but I can't go from everything. I can't leave without them, end quote. McCann's brother, who he owned the pub with, explained to the jury that Frank had told him about threatening phone calls and that the caller had asked whether there was insurance on the pub and so on. In another call, Frank had told him that the caller had mentioned Esther and the baby. Frank told his brother that he hadn't told Esther about the threats because he didn't want to frighten her. Finally, just before the defence rested, on the 41st day of the trial, Frank McCann took the stand in his own defence. McCann had initially taken the stand on the 1st of August to defend himself, but as he spoke, he began having a panic attack. It was the one point during the proceedings that he appeared to have lost control. When he began hyperventilating and shaking, Esther's sister Marion left the courtroom, convinced it was an act and unable to watch what she thought of as a charade. A recess was granted by the judge and then the case was adjourned until McCann was fit to give evidence once more. His testimony was the foundation of the defence's case. He told the court that he had been forced to stand during the interviews with Gardy at Talagarda Station on the 6th of November 1992. Frank said that he had signed notes admitting to writing threatening letters and so on, which were not true. Over the period of his questioning, he had been allowed little to no sleep and had had panic attacks but was given no medical attention. McCann insisted to the court that he had just signed the notes taken on the 5th of November by Gardy without reading them. There had been between 16 and 20 pages of notes, and McCann said that he hadn't been up to reading them all over. Frank alleged abuse by the Gardy while he was in custody. He said that one Garda called him a murdering bastard when he was arrested on the 4th of November and that another told him that he should commit suicide while being transported to Talagarda Station. When McCann arrived at the station, he spoke with his solicitor. Together, they wrote a statement about the alleged abuse and handed it in to the member in charge at the station. McCann said that, on top of the taunts and improper treatment during his detention, he was also slapped around the face and shown pictures of his dead wife and child. McCann further alleged that there were no notes taken during some of the interviews and that things he had said were twisted by the Gardee. On the stand, Frank McCann insisted that he had told his wife that there was a legal problem with the adoption going through and vehemently denied that he had been trying to hide the issues that had come up with it. He said his solicitor had told him about the problems two or three weeks before the decision was issued and that they had requested a formal hearing on the matter. Frank and his solicitor were going to discuss the matter with Esther when the lawyer returned from holiday. McCann also denied making any statements or jokes about life insurance to members of the Gardee. 
And with that, the defence rested. Tom McConnell gave the closing speech for the prosecution. He outlined how McCann had decided to kill his wife and child after he realised the adoption board was likely to tell Esther he'd had a child with a 17-year-old. He'd spent time plotting the murder, setting up a scenario where it appeared someone was threatening him and his family to try and cover it up. On top of all that, McCann had last been seen near to 1am at the very latest, meaning he had ample time, according to the state, to return home and set the fire sometime around half one in the morning, which was around the same time that a car was heard tearing out of the road and the fire was first spotted. Mr. McConnell described McCann's behaviour on the stand as, quote, wheedling, self-pitying and maudlin, end quote, and pointed out that McCann seemed to have had perfectly fine recall for peripheral issues but could not clearly remember things that related directly to the fire and deaths. He was also evasive and flung accusations of conspiracy and cover-up at the Gardaí when faced with tough questions. The state asserted that both the direct and circumstantial evidence all pointed towards McCann as the arsonist and that he had intended to kill Esther and Jessica in the fire. This was no botched suicide pact. Not only that, but the supposed false final confession made by McCann made on the 6th of November 1992 was given with both his brothers and his solicitor present. There had been no Garda strong-arming or pressure applied to McCann. In his closing statement, Barry White pointed out to the jury that the adoption board seemed to be involved or complicit in an attempt to make McCann responsible for the deaths. The board itself had told Gardee what had been going on during the McCann's adoption application. This was private, confidential information, handed to the police just days after the fire, and from that point on, the Gardee set about to prove that McCann had had something to do with the fire. McCann's fate had been sealed by that breach of his family's privacy. Mr. White went on to say that the state actually had no case against his client. Their theory of the crime was based entirely on an uncorroborated confession given by McCann in Talagarda Station in November. The confession, he said, did not stand up to scrutiny and was a false confession, elicited after nearly 48 hours in custody. His client had been interrogated throughout, was sleep-deprived, had had a number of panic attacks and had been put under pressure by his own brothers to confess. On top of all that, despite the fact that McCann would have said whatever the guardie wanted, they had failed to ask questions that were crucial to understanding what had happened in their theory, and had left some questions unanswered. White said that what McCann had used as the basis of his confession was one of many nightmares he had endured after the fire and the deaths of his family. Mr. White also pointed out that no hydrocarbon residues had been found on the scene, indicating that no petrol was present. There were no remains of a container for petrol found either. There was no evidence to show that McCann was the source of threatening letters or messages. 
He argued that the state had attached undue significance to the adoption issue. The allegation against McCann, he said, was entirely unfounded. The girl in question would not appear before the adoption board herself, and their decision would not have stood up to scrutiny. The crux of Mr. White's argument, according to the Irish Times, was that, quote, certain guardee were engaged in a conspiracy to pervert the course of justice in the trial and urged the jury not to trust any of them, end quote. And so Mr. Justice Carney turned to deliver his summing up and charge to the jury. It took him five hours to go through all the evidence that had been presented and warned the jury that there was no corroboration of the statement and interviews given by McCann. He explained that under Section 10 of the Criminal Procedures Act, he was required to point out that there was no corroboration, but they were still entitled to act upon the statements if they were satisfied, beyond a reasonable doubt, that they were accurate. The judge said that the jury should take a three-step approach in determining their verdict. Firstly, they needed to decide if the contents of the statements made by McCann amounted to an admission of setting the fire. Then they needed to ensure that they were convinced that these statements were actually made by McCann. Finally, they were to determine if those statements were true. Mr. Justice Carney underlined that it was up to the prosecution to prove its case to them beyond a reasonable doubt and that McCann benefited from the presumption of innocence. He also reminded the jurors that the accused had a right to silence and that no inferences could be drawn by McCann's refusal to answer various questions put to him by the Gardaí while in custody. And so on the afternoon of Wednesday the 14th of August 1996, the jury was sent out to begin their deliberations. They were behind closed doors for one and a half hours before being sent to a hotel for the night. Within that time, the jury had requested copies of the statements given by Garda witnesses recounting conversations with McCann during October of 1992. The next morning, the jury resumed their consideration of the evidence. At a quarter past six that evening, Mr. Justice Carney called the six men and six women back into the court and told them that he would accept a majority verdict. Thirty minutes later, the twelve jurors returned. They had made their decision. They found Frank McCann unanimously guilty of the murder of Esther and Jessica McCann. They had been just minutes from reaching their decision when they had been called back to court by the judge. It had taken them eight hours and ten minutes to reach the guilty verdict. Shortly after the verdict was announced, on Thursday the 15th of August, Frank McCann was sentenced to serve two concurrent life sentences for the murder of Esther and baby Jessica, the mandatory sentence required by Irish law. The trial was 48 days long, the second longest murder trial in the history of the state to that point, and in that time, the court had heard from 120 witnesses. Leave to appeal was sought by senior counsel, but it was denied. The verdict had by no means been a foregone conclusion. Those who had watched the trial throughout thought it was possible Frank McCann might not be convicted of murder because of his relationship with baby Jessica. McCann had told Gardee during his November statement that he'd gone into her bedroom and lifted Jessica the night of the fire 
and played with her before returning her to her cot. If he had genuine affection for the baby, it followed that perhaps he had not actually intended to kill her. In that case, the crime would not rise to the level of murder. But it seems that the jury had paid heed to the testimony of Esther's sister, Marion Leonard. She'd said that Frank wasn't affectionate with Jessica and that he wouldn't seek her out. Marion described how Esther would bring the baby into him before she put Jessica down for the night. But if Esther didn't do this, then Frank wouldn't go looking for the child to say goodnight. Others who had observed the family recalled that Frank seemed nearly clinical in his approach to the child and appeared more concerned with efficiency than bonding with the baby. After the verdict, Gardy, who dealt with McCann after his arrest, described him as, quote, cunning, calculating, and devoid of sentiment, end quote. This cunning was noted in the courtroom by observers, too. Members of the press realised that when the jury was present in the court, McCann would sit slumped in his seat, hugging himself, but at every other time, McCann could be seen enthusiastically engaging with his legal team. He appeared to have had intense conversations with them, and indeed, his prison guards. Speaking after the trial, Bridget O'Brien, Esther's mum, said, quote, he could have taken Esther into his confidence, and he'd have found her very understanding, but he was too proud, and it would have done his image in the swimming world to have a scandal like that. So he killed his two best friends, his only friends, the people who would have stood by him no matter what happened. End quote. But it would emerge that Frank had had friends, colleagues from the swimming world that he was close with, and it now appears that he shared further interests with, ones that Esther likely would not have forgiven them for. In the mid-90s, an abuse scandal broke, centering on sexual misconduct with young swimmers in the amateur scene. The two main figures involved were Dario Rourke and George Gibney, both of whom had been known to visit the McCann house and who were also both sentenced to lengthy jail terms for indecent assault and statutory rape. While McCann made his way through the appeals process, he was also made to defend himself in another court too. Mrs. O'Brien sued him for wrongful death and mental distress. It was the first civil suit of its sort in the country. McCann lost his appeals and the civil case, resulting in the loss of his share of the proceeds of the sale of the house on Butterfield Avenue. McCann protested his innocence throughout each set of hearings. In 2005, the Minister for Justice indicated that McCann's minimum term would be 20 years. Once that term was completed, every three years, McCann would appear before the parole board in hopes that he would be allowed out on licence. Esther's family were horrified and told the Irish Independent that they were in real fear of McCann should he be released. As we know, life does not mean life here, and McCann was granted temporary release this year. He's been pictured making his way from Arbor Hill Prison to a training course in Ballyfermot. His participation in programmes such as this is an indication that permanent release is now a matter of sooner rather than later for Frank McCann. A troubling thought 
given the opinion of Marion, Esther's sister, in an interview in 2012 with the Irish Independent. She said, quote, McCann killed Esther and Jessica to maintain his reputation. Possession, ownership, and image meant everything to him. It was what he thrived on in swimming circles. He had lots of chances to change his mind, and you would think that after three failed attempts, he might have given up. But he was absolutely determined to kill. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. Don't forget, if you like us, subscribe and leave a review. Or better yet, tell a friend. That really is the easiest way to support your favourite podcasts. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at mensreapod, or you can send an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. This podcast is made possible in part from generous donations by supporters on Patreon. Special thanks this week to Georgia Reed, Gabe, Philippa Duffy, Bridget Curtin, DeBergco, Jackie Leonard, Elliot James, Amy McBride, Shane McGinnell, and Justin and Aaron over at the Generation Y podcast. Thank you so much, guys. Your support means the absolute world to me, and I appreciate it so, so much. Patrons get ad-free and early release episodes, as well as bonus content up to twice a month, and nifty merch, so do go check it out. Our theme music is Quinn's song The Dance Begins by Kevin MacLeod. Additional music is by Juanita Meisel and Kevin MacLeod. This podcast was researched, written, and produced by me, your host, Sinead. All sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes or on our website, www.mensreapod.com. Till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. Tom Tom McConnell, Bachelor at Law, Tom McConnell, Tom McConnell, Barrister of Law, Tom McConnell, Tom McConnell gave the clue. Hello, everyone. Let me tell you about the Apple for the Teacher podcast. I'm Anna Thomas, a teacher and your host. So you're probably thinking it's about reading, writing and arithmetic, right? Well, think again. It's a fresh take on true crime, where you wouldn't expect to find true crime. In schools, yes, schools. You will hear tragic and shocking stories that I have uncovered in my own profession. You'll hear about murder, abduction, hijack, misconduct, student disappearance, suicide, kidnap and ransom, and much, much more. So if you're looking for something a little different in the true crime genre, an apple for the teacher is for you. You can find the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you download your podcasts. So join me as I present People Behaving Badly, The Bad Apples. Looking forward to seeing you soon. But until then, remember to be a good Apple.